Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. All right, we're on. Sorry, sorry. Let's get my headset on there. It is Sandus and Sidekick. We are talking all things Southern Conference basketball. We're going to talk ETSU men, ETSU women, Southern Conference men, Southern Conference women. What else are we going to talk about? Both, did we do both? We, nah, that's it. We're, we're over with both. All right, there show. we go. This is basketball. It's basketball. A little more basketball. And when you thought we had more basketball, we do. We only have three more shows. Sandus and the Sidekick, season four, almost complete. And Thursday... Empty in the notebook. Got a couple of fun segments that we haven't done in a while, and then obviously we're going to talk review of the Chattanooga game for the men and the preview of the UNCG game on, what is that, Sunday, and then mm-hmm. the women obviously going to be playing Thursday night. And then the Saturday tournament preview special. The preview special is going to be next week, what, Tuesday? Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday. Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, we'll see what happens depending on how much stuff we need to prepare for that. And then the post-tournament review show. In oh, which I do that? oh well I'm I'm I'm, I'm not I, planning on doing that. Well okay, <laughs> I, if we're not, then I'm expecting uh, the pre-tournament show to have the celebration of my dominant, dominant bold prediction wins. Well, here's what we can do. Season. How about we come on the next week and if there is a bold prediction championship, proclaim because we have to do bold predictions on each tournament bracket like we do every year. How many are you behind again? Well, each is going to be worth like five points, so the rest <laughs> doesn't really matter. So we'll have to review at some point because there is a championship up for grabs. <laughs> Everything has now gone I mean, 17 points. Goes, you know, is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, I don't We're going to have to bring that up to the committee. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't yeah, if you can get in touch with them. I haven't heard from them quite I've, some time. I will. Uh, there'll be a committee. Okay. We'll have a committee of committee. We work at a university. You know there's a committee for everything. Uh, a committee about committees to have a committee to see what a committee's worth. So, all right, let's talk um, uh, a little men's basketball first. And uh, other quick question. Uh, do you just want to roll through all the uh, ETSU and SOCON in one, or do you want to take a break in between then? So? Nah, we got men, women, and then lots of SOCON stuff in segment three. Okay, so we'll stick with the men right now. ETSU, one on one, finally uh, a road win. Uh, again, and most importantly, they held a team under 50% shooting in the second half, which I thought was going to be tough considering the Citadel was just lights out uh, in the first half, especially from three, and uh, jumped out to a lead. But ETSU really rode the back of Ladarius Brewer in the first half. Uh, I think he had eclipsed his season high in the first half uh, this season. And then – ETSU really just kind of hung on, but they were dominant in a couple of areas I would not have suspected. One, completely dominant points in the paint, which considering Hayden Brown went virtually 13 minutes without a point in the second half, I, I thought was just a, a bad deal of recognition by the Bulldogs and trying to get him, and he finally tried to go inside, got downhill. Bucks had really a hard time answering. Then Citadel went zone, I thought, was genius because ETSU over the last 23 second half threes but points in the paint dominant ETSU second chance points and points off turnovers and if you win those three categories plus ETSU 18 of 20 from the free throw line even if Citadel would have shot better I still think things uh, would have played out a little better for ETSU than it has in the past because those are all numbers ETSU maybe wins one of those categories but for them to win all four of those Certainly important numbers for them to pick up a win against the Citadel. I heard you say that the other day. Is that really right? 0 for 23 from 3 the last two second halves? Yes, 0 for 10, Mercer, 0 for 13, the Citadel. That is insane. And that along with the stat that I'm about to give you, that ETSU was 5 of 27 from the three-point line against the 
he would have told me at the beginning of the year, you're going five for 27, shooting below 20% from outside, and you're winning a game. I would have said you're crazy. Now, Desmond Oliver has said over the last couple of days, he talked about it with you on the coaching show last night, talked about it with me and some preparations for the Wednesday game against Chattanooga, final regular season home game on Tri-City CW. That's going to be on, obviously, Buccaneer Sports Network as well. And then you've got the Sunday game at UNCG, final regular season game for any Southern Conference team, the Bucks and the Spartans. He's talked about how he's adjusted the offense a bit. And if you harken back about two months, things weren't going well in the non-conference after the win down in Naples, winning those three games and taking the tournament championship. So things weren't going well. ETSU was trying to find themselves. It was, I think, right before the Georgia game. I, I'm quite sure it was after the UNCA game because that was kind of a shock to the system when they won by double digits up in Asheville. We talked about how, and we went through a bunch of different scenarios, but if things were going to work, that Desmond Oliver was going to have to adjust his offensive system a bit and how we just didn't think with how the team was made up this year unless the shots went to exactly the right people that offensively this was going to be able to sustain. And now there's been a ton of stuff that's happened between then and now. I think a decade was already gone, but Bonnie Patterson left the team as well. Then there's injuries to Charlie Weber and Cordell Charles, who Coach Oliver all but ruled out last night on the coaching show, said basically they're not going to be back, hoping so, but not expecting it. Now he's down at practice yesterday, and Cordell Charles was able to go through uh, at least a little bit of what I saw. I was down there for about a half hour, and he was involved for – the majority of it. So who knows? That can change too. But there's obviously been a ton of stuff that's happened. You're essentially left with six people. Matt Nunez, when you're going to have a more half-quarter up-and-tumble basketball game, he'll play too, so that would be seven. But numbers are dwindling. And so second halves have been, as you've talked about, very, very difficult. But he says that things have changed, and I'm glad that he's recognized the need with the current personnel. They're using Ladarius Brewer in a variety of different ways. They're driving from the elbow. They're posting up. They're um, using their five fours and threes to go and drive and try and get more shots at the basket, draw more fouls, get to the free throw line. And some of it's by necessity. You talked about just in the simple fact that you have to slow down the game a little bit for your team right now because you've got guys out there 37, 38, 39 minutes. He told me yesterday, he's like, I literally cannot sub Ladarius Brewer. <laughs> like, it's impossible. So when you've got the situation that – Desmond Oliver and this team do have. Props to him. Big ups for knowing that while he wants to do one thing on the offensive end and run his system no matter what, that is just not possible right now. And so it was encouraging to see 18 to 20 at the line, right? That's something he called out post game. Makes up for the 5 for 27 from 3. And I think you're right. It looked like going into the half, Citadel was going to make, you know, what, 20, 25 threes? Like, absurd. I think they made 11 in the first 17 minutes. But I think you and me have been around basketball long enough to know that that just doesn't really happen. And so you expected him to not shoot as well in the second half. And considering ETSU was up two at the break and they had given up 11 threes, I felt pretty confident going into half two. And thankfully the Bucks were able to bring it home. And it was nice to not have a game come down to the absolute wire like it seems like every single one over the last month has been. Yeah, I, I can't think of one that, I guess both games, because Mercer didn't come out of the wire either, but it's, every game seemed like it was, you know, just you're gutting out the last few seconds of it, and ETSU last week, and again, they lost the first with Mercer, but winning that one, and winning one kind of going away with 40 seconds to go, and the Citadel choosing really not to foul. 
and to let ETSU, uh, you know, he took a shot and said, okay, I'll take a shot, and then ETSU dribbled it out. And we have not seen a lot of dribble out into the game, but the rebounding numbers, I think it's amazing considering the more that they've lost inside presence, the more they have gang rebound, and they've been able to out-rebound people. And I think that's something they're going to have to continue to do, especially with the opponent coming up on Wednesday and on Sunday because those are two pretty big physical teams. Even without the Sosa for Chattanooga, that's a pretty good rebounding team. And then also for UNCG, who, do, who does have some big bodies down low, that they're going to be able to rebound. The three-point shooting the last two games is what's a little bit, and I know it's skewed because of the 0 for 23, but the four guys that predominantly take threes. And granted, Ty Brewer is the least of the other three when you talk about Jordan King, Ladarius Brewer, and David Sloan. But Sloan, last two games, is one for nine. Ty Brewer's 0 for 7. Now, he's usually good for one a game, but he's 0 for 7. Jordan King's 4 for 17. And Ladarius Brewer is the best of the group at 5 of 13. But it went 1 for 4 against Mercer. Did go 4 for 9 against the Citadel. Most of that in the first half. That's 10 for 46 by your, and I'm going to use this, really your three best three-point shooters plus the guy that takes the next most, Ty Brewer. They shot 22% last two games, 10 of 46. They're going to have to be better than that. Um, And I don't know. I mean, you can – some of it is, yes, I get it. Some of the legs are kind of wearing out at the end of the games. But we've seen a few other. We saw Sanford as well, just the second half. And Mercer, a lot of shots in the second half, just kind of rolled around and didn't go. And sometimes I get it. it, It's not your night, but to – play with six, we assume, the rest of the way with maybe – I think Nunez will play the next couple games because it's a little bit of a better matchup. Agreed. So I do think they will be a little deeper. And honestly, if he can just take 10 minutes, 12 minutes off the legs spread out over, you know, all the guys. And Ladarius Brewer's playing 36 minutes instead of 39, you know. Ty Brewer's playing 34 instead of 37. David Sloan can play 35 minutes. Jordan King can play 35 instead of 38, 39, you know, getting those numbers that are gaudy. If you can get, you know, each of the the big four, if you will, that coaches talked about all season, if you can give them four minutes each extra rest and try to get it maybe early, you know, in the first half and then use those guys in the second half, I think they it's got a chance. But I think Nunez matchups well uh, with – the guys inside that we're going to see from Chattanooga, the guys inside we're going to see from UNCG, but the shooting numbers, he's just, he's just not going to have to overcome that. I brought it up pregame, and, and I, 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 you could tell Coach was appreciative of the way that I thought about it and worded it because he wanted to say something about it, but he didn't know. He admitted he didn't know how to really say it, but ETSU's not good enough if a, if a couple of guys are off. Right. But they're, they're just not deep enough. They don't have enough numbers. They're just – they can't have two guys. You have one guy, and three of the four score, and maybe you spread it out where maybe a, a Yasser gives you eight or ten, or, you know, Seymour uh, uh, maybe gets you eight or ten. Maybe you could overcome the one guy. But if two of those four just aren't producing, it's just not going to happen uh, for ETSU to pick up a win. With the Citadel, they couldn't overcome a pointless night from. Stephen Clark, that was a surprise because he's averaging double figures this year. I know he had five assists, three rebounds, and three blocks, but 0 for 3 from the floor, no points. And 
two other shooters, or shooters in theory at least, they showed they could be shooters that day. Rudy Fitzgibbons hit his first three shots, all of them threes, went 0 for 7 after those first three, missed his only other three threes, and those four twos that led to him being 3 for 10 in the day. And then Tyler Moff is not a good shooter. <laughs> I think I came on in your ear during the broadcast off air and just said, Tyler Moff is 3 or 4 right now from outside. And you and me both know better. This is not going to continue for him. And he ends 4 of 8, so he finished one of his last four after hitting three of his first four. I think, and this is an interesting conversation, just talking about the long term as you are with ETSU maybe not being quote-unquote good enough to make up for one or two guys, especially when you have six or seven, them having off days. Like Citadel has at least a little bit more depth where you may be able to overcome that. Now they didn't against ETSU, but the Bucks, if Mohab Yasser goes you know, one for six, right, or Jaden Seymour gives you, you know, 20 ineffective minutes, or Matt Nunez comes in and commits two fouls in four minutes and has to sit and then, you know, use him in the second half, whatever the case may be. Or you have guys going, as you said, combined 10 for 46 from outside. You just have such little margin for error. And I wonder, really, how much of this is going to be a mental grind rather than a physical grind on these guys. Because, yes, they're going to have to be out there for long minutes, long stretches, and physical exertion is going to take its toll. There's no doubt. But, and you'll hear a couple of more old school thinkers talk this way, and I'm certainly not one that falls into the old school camp, but I think that this point does resonate. These are young guys. And they are going to have pretty fresh legs more often than not, no matter what you do to them. Like, if you go and play ball in the sun for six hours and drink very little water and it's a physical game and you don't have many breaks, like, okay, sure. But if you're talking about a controlled environment with a 40-minute game where you have built-in rests, many of them for half, and I'm quite sure in practice, and seen it yesterday, I think this was confirmed, like, it's a bit more lax in practice right now because it has to be. Like, you're not going to get after guys and tell them to get up and down the court and go the extra mile and do all the things that will exhaust them ahead of a big game against Chattanooga and ahead of a big time over the next two weeks as you hit the end of the regular season and the beginning of the Southern Conference postseason. What I think more so can wear on these young men is having to go out there day after day knowing there is so much, as you said, that you can't have an off day. There's so much on your shoulders as one of six or seven that are playing. If you go two for ten, you may have cost your team the game. If you go 0 of 6 from outside. Well, even if the rest of the team then goes 10 for 20, you've really dragged everything down, and that might not be enough to get it done. If you blow an assignment, if you're not able to get up and down in transition, you're not able to make the easy or the hard play, every single thing that is done on the court has that much more importance on it because there is so little margin for error because there are so few people on the team. It's just a trickle down from that fact. Six, seven guys. Okay. One or two are off. You got no one else to turn to. And I think the mental pressure of that can affect a game more than the physical side. And that's just a personal opinion. But having played sports myself up through college, having heard some different perspectives on it, and knowing how long a season can be when this is what you're having to deal with on a day-in, day-out basis, and I'm interested to hear your perspective on it. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But the mental side would really, really be a grind on me right now if I was on this team. I think if you're in the top four, I think there's no doubt. I think you 
look at it and you – and as a player, I think there's always the, I don't want to come out of the game. And I think that's one of the things that you see and you're like, no, coach, don't take me out. Guys are upset when you get taken out. But what you see in good teams is rest is good because if you can play – and I thought Coach, when he said this, when, they, when he came in with the Dre and he came in with the philosophy of 10, and he was like, look, with us wanting to play fast and to get up and down, you're going to get the same number of shots in the attempt to get the same number of points in five or six less minutes of action because you'll be fresher and we'll be able to play at a high speed. And we saw that early. He was wanting to do that. They were wanting to do that. And then as the numbers have dwindled, it's tough. It's tough to get those guys. And so when you lose, I think mentally it's already wearing on you. But then you know late in the games that you're not getting your shots to drop. You're not – you don't have that extra burst of whatever it is. So if you can run out to a first-half lead and then try to salt some of the game away in the second half, and that seems to be the game plan right now is – kind of run and do a little more offensively in the first half. And then in the second half, we see Coach kind of slowing things down and going to a little bit more of a, a ball screen type offense. Um, you know, pick and pop, pick and roll, stuff like that. Letting Sloan or Ladarius or whoever's Keene, whoever's got the ball, try to get downhill. But I think the mental side, I, you know, and that's something I've tried to, I've tried to ask them without asking them, like in practice <laughs> – these guys are playing a lot of minutes. Like, is it just a get your shots up, more walkthroughs? You know, you know what you're going to get for most of them. You know, is it more important to get those guys off their feet, beg them not to go walking around campus and just say, guys, you, you, you know, normally this is the not what you want to do, but go go lay in the bed, play some PlayStation or Xbox, whatever these guys got. Play on your phone, do whatever, study, something. Just don't be walking around campus for an hour, killing time, doing whatever. Like you, I think you have to have that conversation with them. And then the mental fatigue of – and for some of these guys, I mean, I, I think you're, you're kidding yourself if you don't think the way last year's season went and the way it ended and the social part of it, not just the way it went. Then the new coach, now another coach, and then, you know, guys quit on you and, you know, and – had to do its best for them, which was not stay with the team. I think there's so much mental stuff that, it, you know, do, do you think, hey, should we get a, uh, you know, a sports psychologist to come in for last week of the season and determine, get you ready, yeah. J- just to turn that around because some of the lapses late in games I have been mental more than physical. And, you know, sometimes, yes, I feel like ETSU – has that killer instinct. Sometimes I feel like they don't have a guy that can just say, we're, we're going to refuse to lose today. But some of that, I think, is added up over time. So the mental side of it, I think, is always very interesting on how and what makes guys tick. I mean, David Sloan was playing at such a high clip, but you look at his last nine or seven games, he's averaging nine points. His last five games, he's averaging 8.2 his last nine games, he's shooting 25 of 75. That's 33%. I mean, he was such a high-level scorer and shooter. But as he's gone down, we've seen Ladarius Brewer go up, and you're almost like, is there a way to 
Is it just how it is when Sloan is scoring? It's almost impossible to get the touches for Ladarius Brewer. Is it if Brewer scoring, it's almost impossible for Sloan? Because King's averages, if you kind of look at that, have kind of stayed the same. Ty Brewer's just up and down, so honestly there's no, from what I can tell, there's no rhyme or reason. That's the only correlation. Those two guys, it's very rare that one guy will have 17 and the other guy 18. Like it's either one guy 17, the other guy's 10 or 11, one guy's 24 and the other guy's 8. It, it just, for whatever reason, I don't know why that is. And for Sloan, I mean, he's logged. He logged a lot of minutes, but even at Wofford, I mean, he only played 30 minutes and was one for five from the floor, 0 for two from three. Just had two points. And think about that game and how that could have gone. But it, it's just a situation where I think the the mental grind of, I think the carryover of last season for the guys that were here last season, I think the late game losses that Coach his trauma, whatever he's talked about, is certainly. I think played into the effect, and now it's one of those things where mentally you've got to talk yourself into I'm not tired because I think it's hard not to look at the numbers. It's hard not to understand that you're 0 for 23. Rather, they know that. Somebody's going to tell them. I mean, you just, or you just know, man, I haven't hit a three in the second half for a while. I mean, just you as an individual player, I think it starts to – you start to wonder what's going on, what's going to happen. I think the effort has still been there. I mean, I don't – recollect watching one of the games late where I just went, boy, the team quit. Now, they didn't make enough plays or they didn't do something smart um, at the end of the game or, or somebody made a better play than they did, but I haven't seen them quit competing, which is the one thing that you can't have, and I have been, and I won't name ETSU teams, but there are ETSU teams I think most people can look at and go, oof, those guys have kind of quit on the season. I've seen multiple sports at ETSU where it's like they've got no shot the rest of the year, no shot to win a game. I don't feel like that ETSU's going in the last two games, no shot. They're going to the tournament, no shot. Those guys are still competing. They're still fighting. I mean, David Sloan, to me, when he's almost picking up a technical foul, and I don't want him to get a technical foul, but when he's almost picking up a technical foul, I mean, he's competing, right? He is trying to do what he can. Now, nobody like King's technical foul, but, again, that's a guy trying to compete to do whatever. I think you can tell the Brewer brothers take – the losses personal. I thought it was great. There wasn't that many fans at the Citadel, but Coach Oliver and the Brewer brothers were the first people after the handshake line to literally high-five or hug the 30 people that made the the trip. Rather, it was family. Rather, it was fans. It was a mixture of both, but there's about 30 ETSU fans there in the corner uh, right behind the bench, and those the Brewer brothers and Coach Oliver all went over, all the other Buck players kind of turned and waved, and they were very thankful, and you could tell. But those guys went in there. So I think you mental side of it is wearing on them. I don't know how you can do that. I think it's a great observation because I think there's so much more sometimes to just lining up and playing. I mean, if it just went to the best athletes all the time, right, then you would never see an upset. You'd never see – you know, you would just know, all right, this guy's team wins all the time because they're more athletic, and that's not necessarily how it is. I think with Chattanooga on the downturn now, DeSosa hasn't played, and we're going to get in Southern Conference here in a little bit, but that's the next opponent coming up. But with DeSosa not playing, and it seems like they're content, or at least they were two weeks ago when I had this conversation with some of their folks, to just wait until um, it was a situation – 
So they got to the tournament because they felt like they had the one seed kind of wrapped up. Now, maybe that was premature. Truth is, if they win one more game of their next two, they do have the one seed. They may not have the outright title. Or if Furman loses one of the next two. Or if Furman loses one of the next two. So, more than likely, Chattanooga is going to fill that prophecy if they are going to be the top seed. And they wanted to wait. And the rule of thumb they had told me was they were not going to break him out in any regular season game unless it was Sanford and they felt like they needed just to get him some minutes to get him up and down the floor. And I've been told it's an upper body injury. I don't know if that's a pectoral, if it's shoulder. It's, I, I've heard told abdomen, me. which abdomen. is like, I, what's going to keep you out for three or four weeks in the abdomen that you can come back from? I, well, it's not pulled you. fat because uh, I've not missed a day with any of that. So it can't be that, and he's not fat. So maybe that's something I, I don't know. So we'll talk a little bit more about kind of their – you're not calling it collapse yet, right? But no, they're no, in the no, exact no, no, same no. situation that they were after they beat Furman. I think in terms of this game, we're going to find out a lot about Lamont Paris, the head coach. And maybe not even necessarily just tomorrow, but when it goes into Saturday, if they should lose and Furman should win again and all of a sudden they're tied at the top and all they need is a win or a Furman loss again for the fourth consecutive game day to take the one seed and a share of the championship or outright championship. But what do we really know about Lamont Paris as the head coach right now, in your opinion? I mean, remember how things have gone since he's been here. There's been marginal improvement each year, right? Really tough start. Only won, I think, 22 games his first two years combined overall. But then a couple of years above 500, and now he's taking the big jump. Five years, it's a long time to wait, right? It's not like he came in and it was instant success. You usually want to see some of that success in year three, and they did. Not to the point they're seeing now, but it's been a slower build than a lot of other I think coaches coming in, I mean, look at, for instance, Steve Forbes at Wake Forest, Steve Forbes here at ETSU, um, but the examples are countless across America, different levels of college basketball, just one that comes to mind quickly. Um, so what do we really know about him in these pressure situations? What we know right now is he has been missing one of, if not the biggest difference makers around not only his team, but the Southern Conference. And... They looked like they were fine. They won four in a row, and now maybe things are catching up with them a bit. They've lost a couple of close games to, granted, solid opponents, but teams that they will probably, at least one of them, going to have to beat in order to win the Southern Conference championship in the postseason, which is obviously the more important of the championships. But now you're in a position, if you're Lamont Paris, where you're going to have to get your team to the finish line if you're not going to use DeSosa, if he's not back. I don't believe he will play tomorrow. Saturday, I think, is up in the air. But can you finesse your team to the finish line after these back-to-back losses? They are such a veteran team. I'm not sure I've seen more fifth or sixth years, and obviously COVID has something to do with this, but more fifth and sixth years on one squad. They have been around. There's some transfers. Obviously, Darius Banks is a perfect example. Someone that's had success elsewhere came in, has taken a smaller role, and is contributing to all the success. Obviously, DJB and Malachi Smith have both been there uh, for a while now. Um, for Gene Baptiste, it's been a long while. For yeah, Malachi, Malachi Wright still State. transferring in. Yeah, but he's still been there for a couple of years now. Um, so there's a lot of buy-in there, but can Lamont Paris push the right buttons in a big moment to have the championship and the postseason go through Chattanooga as one seed, because if you're talking three losses in a row then, going into Saturday, then there's some real doubt introduced into your team, and God forbid you lose a fourth in a row 
to a team you said Sanford's the last game they Sanford. play? I mean, to the hottest team, maybe in all mid-major basketball outside of a Murray State or a Belmont. Um, this is a big moment for him, I think. And rather than knowing what you're going to get and seeing what you're going to get with the players, I think this is bigger for Lamont Paris than anything. The highest seed he's been going into this year was a four last year, right? That was a four or five. I believe that's game, correct, right? yes. And in fairness – he missed some very key pieces in that Southern Conference loss no to doubt. DTSU. So I think he started the year hot, non-conference. It cooled off in league play. And then really an unfair end of the season um, for him. So this was, I think, I think this is a big because if he can still get them to the one seed and a, a championship, shared, regular season, whatever, he's finally got that under his belt. And then can he – advance because I don't know I think he's only won one Southern Conference game in his career so if he can get them to the title game get them into double-a obviously says a lot right now the train for Chattanooga starting to pick up I mean fans are starting to come out I watched a lot of the VMI game when we were driving back from the Citadel and a lot of the talk was hey the fans are starting to fill up people are starting to buy tickets for Asheville it's been a while since they've been excited to this level and in both home games, they dropped. And you wonder, like, we, we saw that earlier this year, right? ETSU had a big game against Wofford. There was a big crowd, and then they lost it, lost a little steam. But then Furman game, ESPNU, crowd was up, able to get a win. It will be interesting to see. I think it will say a lot about Coach Paris. If he could get them the regular season title, that's one. I think if he gets them to the title game, certainly I think – they would feel good, but with all the pieces he has. If they're all healthy, they're by far the best team. It's not even close, and if he has that advantage of the Sosa back, that roster, he's going to lose a lot off that team. Tons. So, if it's not now, when is it going to be? So, I, I, I mean, I hate to put pressure on somebody, but at year five, I think the Chattanooga fans, and again, you talk about the traditions in the Southern Conference and who has the greatest traditions, and Wofford and UNCG fans can get mad all you want, but there's no two teams that have the NCAA tournament trips that Chattanooga and ETSU does. Chattanooga's got 19 regular season titles. They're only behind Davidson for the most regular season titles in league history. And, and I know lately they've been a bit down. Like this millennium, I think they've only got three or four, but the history is there. And you're talking about double-digit NCAA tournament appearances. You're talking about ETSU and Chattanooga each have a Sweet 16 that uh, is under their belt. So, that being said, you're at a school like that. The expectation, even if Chattanooga and the fan base have gotten off the train a little bit, they will very easily get back on that. And it's starting to turn that way. And I still contend, no matter what anybody says, when ETSU and Chattanooga are both good in basketball, it is great for the league. There's only so many fans Wofford and Furman can bring to a championship game. I mean, it just is. I mean, uh, and I think Mercer does a great job of trying to bring the fans when they get to a championship game. We know if Western wins, and again, they're in intensity, but if they can get on a run, we know their fans show up in droves. But the Wofford and Furman folks – and the private schools just can't churn out the amount of bodies that will show up and fill out and sell out. And UNCG, 
again, a public school has a chance to do it and has done it, and we've seen it about fill up. But I think when you get ETSU, you get Chattanooga, and that's why I think the league was good. You get UNCG, Chattanooga, ETSU. You get those two of those three or those three. And then if you do get a Furman or a Wofford, I think it can boost. But I think if you just have three of your last four as private schools and Mercer, Furman, Wofford, I think that, I mean, the ticket sales, the numbers, the attendance, I think it all speaks volumes on what it is. But Lamont Paris, I think this is huge for him and his legacy because I felt like the first couple of years he was sort of bent on his philosophy. And I've said this, I've turned on Coach Paris on my thought process. I thought, man, this guy's not going to figure it out. He's not going to make it. He wants to do sort of the Wisconsin footprint down in Chattanooga. It's just not going to work. Chattanooga was one of the best teams, when, especially when Coach McCarthy was there. He led the, the nation in taking transfers and JUCOs and, and making it work. And it was not a popular thing, you know, 80s, 90s, especially early 90s, late 80s, mid-80s, to do that stuff. And he was able to do that before anybody else went that route. And Chattanooga's kind of built on that. And then Lamont Paris was, you know, hey, we're going to go through four years. We're going to do whatever. We're going to build. We're going to develop. I get it. I get it. You've been in a Power Five where you can do that. And if you miss on those guys, well, you just got another five-star guy coming in or four-star guy coming in. You know, not getting those type guys. If you miss on those classes at this level, it can be devastating. It can set you back for multi-years. But with the transfer portal and everything else, you can get it going, and he's figured that out. He has got a good mix because David Jean Baptiste has been with him the whole way. Now, A.J. Caldwell played one year at South Alabama. This is year three or four. So he's been in the program long enough. I think you could. it's fair to say it's his guy. I mean, he has those pieces of guys that are his guys that maybe spent one year somewhere else or been with him the whole time like David Jean Baptiste, and you're able to, to build that way and then add in a few pieces here and there. And, again, as you've said, he's got a couple of transfers that have been here year two. He's got a one year in DeSosa. We've seen him. And, and I think last year's team probably got hampered when um, Villa, the Spaniard, didn't come back and decided, obviously, with COVID, he, went to, he could earn a little money and all that. So I think he got hosed there. So I think this is a make-or-break situation, not particularly this game against ETSU make-or-break, but I think the end of the regular season and in the tournament because if he loses all that, now maybe he reloads. But I, it's going to be very difficult for him to have a stack of this much talent again, in my opinion, going into next season. We'll talk more about that in a second. All right. Sandoz Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Luxuriously designed. Exquisitely detailed. First in its class. Corner to corner, a true work of art. Capable of going from zero to $300,000 in a few seconds flat. Are we talking about a sports car? Oh, no. We're talking about Jumbo Bucks Premium Edition Instant Games from the Tennessee Lottery. So test drive the new gold standard in instant tickets today. The Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Back with you. Turn our attention to ETSU women's hoops. And 
ETSU got a big road win, back-to-back Division One wins for the first time since 2018-19. They defeated last Thursday Western Carolina. You were there for the call of that, and then a tough game against UNC. Well, I was going to save this for fail downs, but I don't think you were listening to the beginning of the Western Carolina game. I think you were indisposed. I, I was. I was. Uh, I was I, eating. I was trying to eat I and think, walk to a new place. I think you listened to some of it later on, but the first action of the entire night, Technical foul before the jump ball. One nothing ETSU before the game even started because the backboard lights did not work Ooh. at Western Carolina. Have you in your life? Michael Johnson, the referee who came over and told me about the technical, said he had seen it one other time, and he's a veteran official, been around for a long time. Have you ever seen a game have a score line before the jump ball? One other time. One other time. I've never seen it. Men's game. And one of the teams inputted the – I forgot how it was. The team inputted – or so Nikki Zuber, who is our bookkeeper, is given a roster. He inputs the roster prior to sometimes coming to the game, using a website, whatever. And the coaches for each team check the book to make sure the numbers and the players are correct. And what happened was somehow that was incorrect. And I don't know how the, the, the referee comes over, does his check of whatever he's checking, and then they make a motion, and then it was very odd. And then they're meeting with both coaches, and I could tell the visiting team is upset, and one of the guys is yelling at Nikki Zuber. And after the game, I was talking to Nikki, and he was like, well, I'll put it in because this is the roster they have online or whatever. But each coach is responsible. And he says, and he said, a coach walked over there and did the old pencil number, name, yeah. whatever, whatever, and just went through the motions. Didn't notice. Something was off. It was technical foul. It was the one-shot free throw. Yeah. And it was one nothing. That's the only other time. I think there was a Southern Conference, another game that I was watching or paying attention to when dunking wasn't allowed. And somebody had dunked in the pregame uh, warm-up lines, and that, that was a two-shot technical foul back in the day. That was not an ETSU game, right. but that was another Southern Conference game that I had either heard about or maybe I'd watched the game or just read about it or it made its rounds one way or another at Southern Conference tournament where people were like, hey, have you ever heard of this? But that, luckily, many, I don't know, it's not even that long ago. It's like six, eight years ago, they finally were like, yeah, you can dunk in layup lines. Why nobody was allowed to dunk in layup that lines is, so is the dumbest thing in I, I Back in the day, I get it. You don't want to break a backboard, but, I mean, I think the backboard, the rims have come a long way since Moses Malone. I don't know. I don't know how long it's been. But, anyways, that one other time have I seen that before. I was flabbergasted. I had never even heard of something like that. And so it was one nothing before the jump ball, and I was obviously miffed on air until Michael J- Johnson came over and said what he said to me about it and – then I just was so taken aback. Like, it was a whole different – basketball will never be the same to me after that. I couldn't believe it. Like, there's a scoreline before a second even runs off the clock. I blew my mind. Anyway, what also blew my mind, this to me – and you can point to a lot of these examples. You have to go back and look at different individual careers over time and go and find it. But I think there's some games and moments in time for specific individuals where you can point to and say – that's when this person arrived. This is when they truly became or started to step into the shoes, play the role 
be the player, realize the potential that they have, and move into a different portion of their career. And to me, for ETSU's Courtney Moore, it was the steal and score with the Bucks up, one possession, three-point game, right around a minute left. She knocks the ball away, telegraphed inbounds pass, goes the length of the court, and scores to make it a two-possession game, and that was essentially curtains for the contest. And I may be exaggerating it. I'll be interested to see what you have to say about it, but we've seen Courtney Moore do some good things, right? We've seen her put up double-digit scoring games. We've seen her be the de facto point guard when Carly Hooks was unavailable, when the Bucks were lacking for depth, things like that. Um, so we've seen those types of things from Courtney Moore. We've seen progress. Have we seen a moment where she was able to take her team to victory? I don't think so. I think that was the moment against Western Carolina. And it was so important because that's the first time ETSU has won. Stat that we have used ad nauseum. Back-to-back Division One games in three years. And I was sad to see him fall short on Saturday. But still, that Western Carolina win was massive. And I think a lot of it was having to do with Courtney Moore. Of course, Carly Hooks came back, too. They were without Demaya Griffin. But Courtney Moore's play in the important point of the game where they needed someone, there she was. Three straight games, double figures for Courtney Moore, too. And that's not happened in her career to that point forward, to have three consecutive games in double figures. It, they, they've been lacking, again, like we talked about the men, they've been lacking somebody that you felt like, you know, Tiana Tartar was the last one I can think of. I, you know, Erica Haynes-Overton had moments. Tartar seemed to be like a legit end-of-the-game, go-for-the-jugular type person. Haynes-Overton could take over a game like none other. Haynes-Overton, you could easily point to the Tennessee game. She single-handedly kept them in the game. And there are other examples where she was just dominant on the floor. But I think sort of that refused to lose, like I'm going to get you this bucket or get this stop or make a game-changing play. I don't know that Overton made – and, again, she overlapped a little bit, so some of it was Tartar was still there. But you start to turn a corner when you see plays like that made. And for her confidence, I think that certainly would be huge if you could get her to do that on multiple occasions. And so I thought it was big because not only is it back-to-back wins, but those are back-to-back road wins for ETSU as well. So I thought that was huge. I thought you look at Chattanooga, eight made threes. You look at Western, eight made threes. That seems to be the number. I know I was using double figures earlier. I went and did a little more research um, before yesterday's coaches show, and they're, when the women's team hits eight threes, six and one. So that's more of a magic number than ten. And, and they're still three and four, or three and one, excuse me, when hitting ten or more. But you get to eight, they've got three more wins. When they can just get to eight, it just seems to be the difference. But – Carly Hook, seven straight double figures. You look at Courtney Moore, who shows glimpses that she could be a really, really good player. And last year, you're like, okay, it's a freshman. She comes from PK Young. That's a single-A school. It's going to take a little bit of getting – I know she played AU at a higher level, but still it's going to take a while to get kind of going. This year, was it the Wake Forest game? I think she had 18, and you're thinking, okay – then she'd go a couple games single digits. Then we get another 10 or 12, 15 or whatever it was. Big game against Sanford at home. But the last three, 
we're starting to see that consistency come around in scoring. And if you can guarantee double figures with her in the way that she's able to create and run the offense, and then you get Carly Hooks coming off the bench and still being able to get double figures and doing that drive to the rim and just showing that she's a, uh, a superior athlete, then I think that would be tremendous because then you don't need as much from Ja'Kai Davis. You don't need as much from Demi Burdick, although it would be great to have one of the two or them combined. I think that's my new theory is can we get those two ladies to combine to double-figure rebounds? Can we get them to combine to 14 points, some form or fashion, and then have that go with the other two ladies scoring double figures? Now all of a sudden you've got 30 or 40 points in the books and you just need the others to come up with just a few more, especially in this league, because you know if you get to 60, you've done a lot of good work. But I, too, have been waiting for Courtney Moore to sort of take the reins over, and she's slowly starting, at least the last three, she can continue at home the next two games, turn that corner. I think that's just going to speak volumes going into the tournament. Maybe it was no more on display than against UNCG because she went four for 11 from the floor. Okay, day, you know, hits a couple of threes, does have 11 points, five rebounds, and assist a steal. But considering what the rest of the team did in the backcourt and looking at what Courtney Moore was able to do, UNCG, we know, is a very good defensive team. They always have been on the men's side since I've known about them, and they have been on the women's side really since Trina Patterson has been there. The rest of the backcourt was not able to avoid that defensive trap that UNCG sucked DTSU into it. I'm not talking, like, schematically a trap. It's just the trap of, okay, we're coming off a couple of wins, feeling good about ourselves, shots have gone in the basket, and I break down the threes into efficiency-wise. Last time I checked, the Bucks were making, like, 38% of their threes and wins and, like, 23% of losses. So tier stat, just to add on a little bit, the efficiency of it is big, too. So you've made some shots, you know, the last couple of games, and you are starting to, you know, feel like you're arriving, right? You've won four of eight. You've won three of five. You've won back-to-back. But the rest of the backcourt fell into that trap, that mindset, and they went five of 33 combined, while Courtney Moore was four of 11. And you're just not going to win a lot of games when you go five for 33 from four of your different players, and the only person able to carry the water that day is Courtney Moore. Amaya Adams was not able to play. She went down late in that Western Carolina game. Couldn't get a status update on her before ETSU takes on Permanent Wofford this late week and weekend. But if you don't have her and you're not going to have Demaya Griffin, it doesn't sound like, for the remainder of the season, then those wing players, those drivers, slashers, and in Griffin's case, obviously a very good shooter too, you're hurting in that area, so the backcourt then especially is not able to have those kind of days, those 5 for 33s if you're going to have success. And still, ETSU was right there. I mean, they only allowed 50 points, and they were up by, I think it was 5, with like 6 or 7 minutes left, and then didn't make a field goal for the last 7.15. And I wasn't keeping up with the game at that moment live because we were doing ETSU men's basketball. You were at the Citadel. I was here in studio. I went back and watched some of it, and – I saw that stat of no field goals in the last 7.15, and your heart just sinks a little bit because you know they're right there. They're able to hold down the couple of scores that UNCG has, and it was just so frustrating. I was texting with Simon Harris after, and he said, oh, we really let that one go. Like, that was our game, and that one's going to hurt for a little bit of time. 
I'm quite sure that they'll be able to put it out of their minds and move forward to this week against a couple of really good teams in the Paladins and the Terriers. But that one stuck because you were right there, and it seemed like you were doing enough for the vast majority of the time. Into the halves, we've talked about how you can get some momentum or lose momentum or whatever. It was in the third quarter. ETSU had a chance to score, took a shot with a few seconds left, didn't go down, offensive rebound, UNCG's at midcourt, getting ready to try heave, and ETSU fouls, .8. You give up free throws of .8. When somebody's about to try half-court heave, you give up points, then they start second half on a 10-2, whatever it was, 10-2 run, and eventually it was like a 9 nothing. But UNCG has zero double-figure scores. You hold UNCG to zero double-figure scores. They go 9 of 22 from the line. Everything there is sort of in front of you if you're ETSU to pick up a win. I thought that was a little heartbreaking, and I thought when they beat one at chat, I felt pretty good they were going to beat Western Carolina on the road, and I was hoping that those two wins would just sort of carry some momentum into beating UNCG, and then you come home to what right now is the you know the two and three seeds if it were to end in the tournament in Wofford and Furman and get a chance to maybe see if you can set something up uh, so that you would be able to make a run. And they still could make a run. Uh, again, I just, other than Mercer, I, I and maybe my mind will change on Thursday when I get a look at Wofford live and in person. But certainly I think the tournament is still a little bit wide open on the women's side, and I think a team that could get hot could win it uh, or at least face Mercer in the championship game. On that side of the bracket, I feel like, Somebody's going to have a hard time getting past Mercer to get to the championship game. But you get to that Sunday, we've seen it before. You got a day off, you get some fresh legs, new day. You only got to win one. Doesn't matter what you've done against them the rest of the season. But I really felt like the ETSU women were going to pick up the win, have a three game win streak, and really have a ton of momentum. Again, they won two of the last three. They've looked better. The fourth quarter, mid fourth quarter, or starts the mid fourth quarter, or mid to late fourth quarter. Seven minutes, whatever it was, uh, certainly didn't look well uh, for ETSU. But they're going to turn around and get a couple home games and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, let's put it in perspective. They were 1-15, and 15 and they've now moved to 5-20. and 20. They're 4-5 and five in their last nine, which I know is still a losing record, but it's exponential progress. So we'll know more once Thursday and Saturday come around. Obviously, we'll have all the matchups and the breakdowns next week in the Southern Conference Tournament Show, but we'll also break down what Wofford looks like on Thursday. All right, that'll be our Thursday breakdown of ETSU women's basketball. When we come back, it's our favorite, the Southern Conference breakdown on Santos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, Harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Sandos and the sidekick. We have a mission. Sidekick! 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 
Big results around the league. Chattanooga twice blows chances to lock up a share of the Southern Conference regular season title after it seemed like it was essentially over. They're in the exact same situation now as they were after beating Furman 10 days ago. Magic number is one. You know I love the magic number. Baseball thing, but it's super applicable across other sports too. Magic number is one. They just need one win or Furman to lose once to get at least a share of the league title. And the one seed with Furman winning twice and Chat losing to UNCG and BMI. The plot thickens Jay Sandoz with just five days remaining in the Southern Conference's regular season. Well, we will see uh, what's going to happen. I'll say this. The first loss, UNCG, I thought a little shocking. The second one, when Jake Stevens went down with ankle injury like eight, nine minutes to go in the first half, and it was looking like he was not going to, which he didn't, but it was looking like very early he was not going to come back. They had took the shoe off, put the ice on. That's usually not good news uh, for coming back. Normally, if you're going to come back, they want to leave the shoe on, try to minimize the swelling. So when they showed a picture mid-late first half of the ice on the ankle, I'm like, well, he's not coming back. Well, Chattanooga is going to be able to make a run. And they did. Made a run, took the lead with a minute and a half to go, and all of a sudden, VMI, who hit shots all day, hit enough shots and, and hung on for a victory. And I mean, give VMI credit. Uh, and Dan Earl just continues. You know, he's not been the greatest road team there, but been able to pick up a few wins here and there. And for Chattanooga, they've got two chances here. They got to get one. I hope Furman loses, but they thought they had the one seed wrapped up a three or four games ago, kind of celebrating a little bit early. They're going to have to get one to make sure that they will celebrate and be the one seed. On VMI, you make a good point. I think it was like 10 wins, 12 wins or something over the last six years of Dan Earl on the road, and they've got six wins away from home this year, or I should say true road games. They've also got a neutral site win, too. So that is uh, incredible, incredible progress. And that Jake Stevens injury, let's just detail it a little bit more. Second leading scorer in the league. Played just 11 minutes. Now, I went back and watched the ankle injury. Chattanooga, not great on the replays, so they didn't have a up close of it. But you could tell when he went up to try and block the shot of Malachi Smith. He either landed on a foot or just came down awkwardly in general, and there was a sharp turn of the ankle. And he rolled around in what certainly seemed to be immense pain limped over to the bench, and they were looking, had two or three people looking at that ankle, did not return, as you said. I would doubt that he would play this week, just looking at the severity of the ankle. Now, I'm not a doctor. I have no evidence behind this, but just looking at how much pain he was in and knowing ankle sprains can just be one of those things that don't magically heal. You need time, right? If they're not able to get him back this week, then all of a sudden you're looking at potentially, and we'll talk about the middle five teams in the league a little bit more in their remaining schedules in a few minutes, but they're looking at a potential giant slide down the standings and all of a sudden finishing in, say, five, six, or perhaps, and this would be a complete shot considering where they were a week or so ago, perhaps the seventh spot having to play against Western Carolina in the playoff. Potentially. If it's a high ankle. That might I, be tournament, too. Exactly. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he can make it. I would be shocked if it's a high ankle. That's a three or four week. I don't care how your body heals. That's a three or four week ordeal that he could be out for the tournament. I've not heard anything other than out ankle VMI's not talking about it. Of course, even if he didn't play this week, that doesn't mean he's out for the tournament. You know, we're going to play that close to the best. But if it's a high ankle, I seriously doubt that he is going to be able to play the rest of this season, including the tournament. 
So we'll see what kind of a devastating blow that is. It'll just come down to can VMI hit enough shots, which they did against Chattanooga on the road. So that does give you some hope, but that certainly is a key piece. And if you're allowed to kind of game plan without him, I think that changes how you guard VMI and just makes what could have been a special run for VMI as it looked like they were in line to be maybe the third seed and still, and I guess still could get there with some wins and the rest of the schedule will go over, but that seems to be a devastating blow. Um, one of the biggest ones I think that to any team could have taken in Jake Stevens and VMI. Yeah, Trey Bonham has been absolutely excellent the last month, month and a half. But if you're telling me that you're going in with Kerfman and Bonham as your top two scorers and there's no Jake Stevens, I mean, that is crippling. There's no question about it. I, I want him to be on the court, right? We want to see Jake Stevens. We want the league to look as good as it possibly can. And for all of the difference makers to be out there to truly get a champion where there's no, not that it would be in the record books, there's no asterisk, right? We can't sit here after and say, well, you know, Chattanooga won it, but, you know, Jake Stevens. Or Furman, yeah, they went and got it, but we're still going to make fun of Bob Ritchie because, you know, he didn't have to beat the Silvio DeSosa and the Jake Stevens. And so you certainly want him out there, but without him. Oh, goodness. I mean, one of the most complete players in the league, one of the best bigs in all mid-major basketball. That would be brutal. Furman, able to keep the pressure on chat with a win at Western. No surprise there. But if I told you that Alex Hunter and Mike Bothwell would combine for six points on two of 13 from the field, and the Paladins would win. I'm guessing you would have called me crazy. But where they left off, Conley Garrison and Marcus Foster stepped in. 13 of 16 from the floor for those two. And it went over Wofford as B.J. Mack had two looks inside, 30 seconds to, be, to go to give Wofford the lead from deep. Instead, a 70-69 to 69 final as he missed both. I didn't love that they were both Both looks were terrible. And both terrible. looks were not very good at all. Somebody get to the basket, try and draw a foul. And Obviously, Mac is their guy, but I know he's not super quick off terrible. the dribble either, but, yeah, they weren't good looks. And I was surprised that Furman was able to do that with, obviously, Bothwell and Hunter struck. I, I think the the thing, too, and, uh, and Mac wanted a foul in the who There's nobody that's going to bail you out with that terrible shot no. in the last second, nor should they. Um, Wofford got the technical foul. And then cut it 76-7 to 70-69. Then they had the possession with a minute to go. Missed the first max shot. Was able to get the rebound. Hold. What I didn't love about it is I've always gone with the theory, if you're down, don't hold for the last shot of the game. You go as fast as you can. And it's one thing I love about the NBA over college. Now, there's not a lot. Trust me, I love about the NBA more in college. But if you're down, they try to score. And they're just like, well, we'd rather try to play defense with the lead than hold for the last shot. So here's the other thing I thought. Larson had the ball with, I don't know, 15, 16 seconds, dribbled it down to about five or six, threw it to Mac. Mac would jab step, jab step, jab step, fire an awful three. So I don't. I just wasn't in love with that. I thought Larson should have tried to drive to the rim or give it to Klesman. Give it to somebody to try to drive to the rim, either create a play or a driving kick so you at least had a better look. So that's what I was a little frustrated watching. Again, I real no dog in the fight. None of this really affects ETSU one way or another. Um, and if you're an ETSU fan, you probably want to firm it to win just to try to leapfrog Wofford in some capacity if you could even do that. So – I thought just terrible looks. Now, 
There were there was a flagrant foul. I know you want to talk about the technical. I'm watching it right now. All right, there was a flagrant foul too. We oh, there's a flagrant also. There, okay. Yeah, there was, our, it was uh, 13 minutes ago in the second half. Well, you want to talk about that too? Anything with referees? Open season. Well, I'll say this, and uh, and Socon John alerted me because I just watched the end of the game, so I saw that um, while I was in a break. Uh, doing the game against the Citadel, I watched that technical foul sort of unfold, so I went back and watched it later. The flagrant was interesting because Klesman goes down to the ground, and honestly, his arm just seems to go back, and it looks like his, I don't know, I was told elbow. I didn't think his elbow, but something with his arm uh, does make contact as they're going to the ground, and I thought incidental contact in the back of the head. Um I guess it was Pajee's back of his head hit on the floor. Well, he reacts by just a two-hand shove of Klesmet as he comes up. So he got the flagrant. I didn't think it's one of those I get it. There was a two-hand shove that happened in front of everybody. I wasn't really in love with that uh, because I don't think, A, I don't think Klesmet should have been hit with anything. And I know he they, they got the two-hand shove, and it's a rivalry game, and you want to – slow things down there. I didn't love I didn't love that either, although I get why Pajee's the second guy would get it as opposed to the first guy. And again, watching the replay, I you have to you're supposed to have intent. I know if the arm goes up and all that, but sometimes if you're both going down to the ground, some it's like when Ty Brewer came down after getting undercut where there was a flagrant on the Sanford player. When he came down his arm came around the neck of the Sanford player as he was trying to break his fall after being undercut. And Sanford fans are upset that it wasn't a, a foul on Ty Brewer for grabbing a guy around the neck, but he just got undercut was going to the ground. The technical foul, I think what happened, and here's I'm going to give you what I think happened and you give me. I'm not in love with it, um, number one. The second thing is you're, they got rid of the walking over a guy. You are not allowed when a guy's on the ground to walk over because of all the stuff that, that happens. Garrett Heen... Uh, tries to get a tie, and first of all, I thought there was a foul. You're not allowed to sort of reach around the guy from around the back with two arms to get the ball. So I think they probably could have solved that to start with by blowing that instead of giving the timeout to Larson. Then Heen, who could have easily walked around Larson, tries to walk through him and nudges him with the knee. A gentle nudge. Is that fair? Not an egregious nudge, but a gentle nudge. So you said, and then you said Larson, this to me. You said this to me Sunday, and I'm just watching it, so I'm just kind of beside myself processing it. So Larson does what Larson does, and he is flopping around as if somebody literally got a 10-yard head start and punted him right in the gut. And give Larson credit because he got what he wanted, right? He got the technical foul. My argument to Furman fans who were sending me messages and livid about it, Garrett Heen could have walked around Larson. They, they've made the rule you're not allowed to walk over, step over, do any of that because what happens is you start more fights, and they want that to go away. Heen could have easily gotten away from that. He didn't because, you know, him and Larson are having a moment there battling for the basketball, and he does give a gentle nudge. It's not an egregious nudge. There's a nudge, and I think while the technical foul, A, he stepped over, and B, there was a nudge, but the second thing is, those are legitimate people getting in people's faces and referees blowing a whistle and trying to de-escalate the situation. If there was no situation to de-escalate, I contend there's no technical foul. That's what I want to say. And then I heard from 
fans that, well, Dwight Perry, the assistant coach, ran on the floor. Well, that's legal. If there is a situation where there are possible fisticuffs, the players can't come out on the floor, but coaches can come and break up. Now, did Dwight Perry, who used to work at Furman, turn around and chirp at Furman's bench? I don't know, and I wasn't there. And if he did, then I can certainly see where Furman has a gripe there. But if Dwight Perry, the assistant coach, runs over there to simply get his guy as whistles are being blown and they're nose-to-nose and you're trying to de-escalate a situation, that is fine. They encourage coaches to come de-escalate. So you watch it one more time and you give me your thoughts. And I, I should have sent you the flagrant one, too. I'm mad at everybody. Garrett, he get away from the basket. Yeah, I don't know what There's he's doing. Nobody what are you around doing? Ryan Larson. He's gonna get the timeout, and then he keeps his hands on the ball, looking at the ref, and then decides to walk directly at him through him while he's on the ground. And it's a bad, it's a bad play. By then him. I'm mad at Ryan Larson because it looks like he got hit by a bus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Floppy McFlopperton got hit by a bus. Floppy McFlopperton. What are you talking when about? When there was about a quarter of a second of contact that grazed his abdomen from a kneecap of a stick skinny gear. A vicious, could vicious not kneecap. have hurt at all. Now you're right. Heady play by Ryan Larson. All he does is make heady plays, plays that annoy me to no end. But, smart play, right? If you get the call. The fact that the referees were sucked in to making that call. Stupid. All of it is stupid. I'll say this. Wofford should feel fortunate they were even in the situation because they got the technical to get within one. Furman couldn't score the last two minutes, so they should feel fortunate they even had shots at the basket. And I get taking one three because B.J. Mack is shooting the lights out, right? He's during league play, like the best shooter from outside in the league. But you can't shoot two from out there. Somebody's got to get to the basket. You're only down one point. There's no reason to shoot a three. So I'm mad at absolutely everybody that touched the ball in the final 53.1 seconds, including Ryan Larson, including Garrett Heen, including B.J. Mack. I'm mad at Jay McCauley because he didn't tell someone to go to the basket. I'm mad at Bob Ritchie because how do you not coach your guys up and say, hey, you don't walk right through a guy, even if our bench is right over here and he's going to get the timeout. He's and, on the floor. And Everybody screwed up and the rest. Everyone has to look and say, hey, guys, if you're around Larson, please don't graze him because he's going to yell sweet Jesus and go flopping around. Know your that. personnel. I, one of my greatest things I think I ever got accomplished at ETSU was when I got uh, the mutiny and all those guys, the Twitter mafia, to make the uh, Alonzo uh, Francois, Alonzo Francis, listen to me, I'm going to mess that up again. <laughs> Francis Alonzo, make the flop counter, right, because of how much he flopped around. And he was a flop, and he'd throw his head back, and he'd flop, and he'd, oh, my God. He would I would like the Furman fans, I'm begging you, Furman fans, can you get a picture of Larson's face, stick it on a white piece of board, and do the, the Floppy McFlopperton count of Larson? And every time he does something, you just do the flop count, and you just keep adding it up and see how many flop counts you can get from Tyler Larson. Ryan Larson? Ryan Larson. I'm also Tyler mad at you Larson. because Larson. you got me mad at refs, and I try not to get mad at refs. Uh, I'm not mad at Furman as a team. because All right, Overall, the technical foul you're not a fan of, right? Because I, no. I, I, I was not a fan of the, of the technical that, that being said, Garrett Heen could have very easily de-escalated all of that. I still was not a fan of the call. I'm not mad at Furman as a team because they keep the Southern Conference race interesting, if only for another 36 hours, we'll obviously see. Mercer was right in the mix for a top three spot. Seemed to be overcoming not having Natalie Alvarez for the second long stint this year, but they go do what no one should ever do, lose to Western Carolina. No Alvarez. They also didn't have Kamar Robertson, but Western didn't have Nick Robinson. 
who was injured against Furman last midweek and played only three minutes then. Now, Vontarius Wolbright was back last week, but no Robinson. I would have said no chance. Could this be the beginning of the end of the Bears without Alvarez? Granted, I think they've done tremendously just to stick in this long because I would have thought they would have collapsed and been like 5-11 and 11 going into the last week without Alvarez for the period of time they've had to play without him. But is this finally what we've been waiting for? And I'm not happy about it because I like Craig Gary, I like Mercer, but is this what we have said is going to happen over, what, weeks and weeks and months with Alvarez being out, the team not being up to snuff? Lose to Western. I'm just confused. Ah, the, no Robinson. I, I just feel like you attach yourself Robert Riddle in football. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Alvarez and Mercer basketball. I don't know what it is. Mercer, I don't know. They're just, they're just you, you just attach yourself I to them. I love Nutella. I know. You, you are uh, besides that. But, yes, uh, for Coach Gary, I, I just can't figure it out, who, who I like um, a lot. Um, and I think he's done some things. I think if he – I don't know what it is. The first half, they seem to do great getting the ball inside. In, in a lot of games I watch. And in the second half, they seem to not be able to get it inside. And I think they've got players that are hard matchups. Because Hase, even if he's not the traditional back-to-the-basket, like, you know, get you down there in the jump hook, what he's great at is what a lot of those European guys and the poor man's Dirk Nowinski where – you know, he backs you down, and then he does a one-step kickback fadeaway jumper from eight feet that he seems to never miss. He could hit that, I think, all day if he wants to, you know, or at least against the, the couple teams I've seen him play. Whenever he wants to do it, it seems like he is be able, he's been able to do it. So I don't know exactly what it is in the second half. You know, Grant has been dominant in games. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like they have an advantage, and they could do more – Inside and to me, I think that's what they are lacking and what they are having trouble with is some of that inside game. But the just the inconsistency right now for Mercer certainly I, I don't know what to expect. And last year they were similar, didn't know what to expect up and down. Got in seven seed and guess what? Got hot. Got to the championship game. So I, I throw my hands up because it's out of all the teams we're probably going to talk about today. Since I feel like I know a little bit more about Sanford than I did a couple of weeks ago, uh, I probably would have put Sanford in this boat. But Mercer right now is the one wild card team. I don't know what to tell you what to expect game in and game out, game out from them. Well, we know what to expect from Sanford, at least recently. Going into last night, they were fourth in the league. Let that sink in, fourth in the league. They had won seven of their last eight after winning a game 199 in overtime against VMI. But then turning around 48 hours later and beating UNCG 55-49, to that is versatility. Sanford won back-to-back games. 100 points and then 55 points. Gave up 16 threes against VMI, 5 against UNCG. And allowed them just 28% from the floor. And then last night, let this sink in, they won again. It's 8 of 9, they're tied for third. Bucky McMillan is the best coach in the Southern Conference. He is my Southern Conference coach of the year. Wow. And to what? Let five, that sink in you, after the you last said, year. You said five in a row, right? They I won, don't know. It's eight of nine. Yeah, I think they won five in a row. Eight of nine. They're nine and Could seven Could be the, the three seed. They were one and six in the league. It was over. They're nine and seven. You want me to blow your mind, too? Okay. If they were able to beat Furman and Chat, the top two teams, and Furman drops the next two, they would be the two seed. They'd have the tiebreaker over Furman? They would. 
Let that double sink in. They could be the two seed at 11-7 and seven and would have won seven in a row going into the conference tournament. This is the Sanford Bulldogs. You're a believer. I'll be honest. With the makeup of the team they got this year and the way the league is right now, Sanford's got as good a shot as anything. And two weeks ago, I wouldn't have said it. Think about They've that. got a good a shot as Furman and Chad. They do. Uh, and they've gotten wins over Chad and Furman this year. There's not many teams that can say that. Did they beat Furman? I thought they beat Furman at their place. They got not? smoked by 32. And then oh, they got them this week yeah. at their place. Sorry, sorry. You're right. So they you're may right. not have the tiebreaker. They may not. Okay. And, Qu- and Quez Glover did not. Um, uh, well, they would still have the tiebreaker if Chattanooga's number one because they beat Chad and Furman, Furman did, not. did not. That's true. Yeah. So that being said, though, uh, for Furman or Sanford lost at Furman without Quez. Now, what it you can now this is always an interesting argument. Is he worth thirty two? Well, true, he's not going to score 32 a game, but there's a lot of things he changes with him on the floor. And in fairness to Sanford, that was when Furman was absolutely twisting everybody's eyeballs out of their heads. I mean, just lambasting people and was as hot as anybody in the country. Now it's flipped. So if Sanford was able to win this game at home, right, it's at Sanford, then they win that one. Furman loses the next one. They beat Chad again. They would have swept Chad. Sanford would have. So they would definitely have the tiebreaker over there. So there you go. They could okay. be the two. I don't think they will. I'm just saying no, they could be. Well, let's look at how we think things are going to shake out. Because from three to seven, I'm still saying three to seven. I'm not going to include two. But Yeah, I think three, Chad Furman's like. one and two, correct? Everyone is separated by a game from three to seven. I would definitely pen in Chattanooga and Furman and whatever. I still think Chattanooga is going to be the league champion. I think Furman's going to be the number two. Here's the schedules for the next five. VMI, home to Wofford, at West. Sanford, we know, home to Furman, at Chad. UNCG, home to Western, home to ETSU. Mercer, home to Citadel, at Wofford. Wofford at VMI, home to Mercer. And, again, 9-7, and 9-7 and seven for Sanford and VMI. 8-8 eight and eight for UNCG, Who's Wofford, Wofford and Mercer. Say it again. Wofford's got at VMI and home to Two big game, okay. So, again, Wofford and Western on the road for VMI. Wofford at home and at Western. Sanford home to Furman at Chattanooga. UNCG home to both Western and ETSU. I think if you're an impartial bystander just looking at the standings, you like that schedule most. Because ETSU is eighth, Western's tenth. Yeah, absolutely. Our personal bias no, out no, of it. absolutely. Mercer home to Citadel at Wofford. Wofford at VMI home to Mercer. I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I do, if I'm UNCG, like where I'm sitting. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of tie breaks, too, because the odds that these teams don't finish tied, at least a couple of them, is very, very low considering where they are right now. Sanford has it tough, there's no question, but they're extremely hot. Now, the counter could be, well, have they really beaten that many good teams? Okay, well, fair, considering they've still got Furman and Chattanooga ahead of them. BMI without Stevens. And then Wofford, obviously, are in a lot of games, but, you know, 500, about where you probably figured before the year coming in, they'd end up. And then Mercer, no Alvarez. He's in a boot again. It doesn't seem like he's coming back again. Who knows? So, I don't know. A lot left in the air for three through seven. And specifically, sliding to that seven would be very damaging. I think the last, that, that Saturday matchup, Wofford, Mercer, the loser will be in the seven. That's going to be my mm. That's gonna be my guess. Mm. I think the loser of that, 
will be in the will be the seven and have to play Friday. Now, this, again, the seven seed's not been a bad slot for people. Last two seven seeds have been to the title game, and ironically enough, do you know the last two seven seeds were Wofford and Mercer. And Mercer. <laughs> there you go. So it's just fitting, well, and it does make sense because you got UNCG then winning both. I'm guessing in this scenario, that'll give them the ten and eight. You've probably got BMI and Stanford winning one of their next two. That would get them to ten and eight, and, and, and so I got one on one for each of those. Right. So I'm fine. So we'll have more because some of the men's uh, standings and seedings will be set by then on the women's side. We'll break them down Thursday. We'll talk about their seedings and such, too. We do know that for sure Mercer is the one and Wofford is the two on the women's side. Everything else up for grabs except for Western's the eight. So a lot to go over that. All right, so we will recap the game, ETSU Chattanooga. We will talk Southern Conference men. We will preview the women's action this weekend coming up on Thursday. We'll talk women's Southern Conference seating and more. That's when we'll be back with you. Most exciting time. Conference tournament time gets me jacked up. Oh, 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 oh. And Furman, I'm blaming you if you don't have a floppy McFlopperton calendar. Oh, 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 oh. Buckner. Oh, oh. Of course, I'm right. Oh, you gotta be kidding me!